0: Thank you. For yet another week of Behind the Lens, welcome. I am Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with directors, writers, uh, cinematographers, editors, sound people, costumers, uh, in film, television, on stage, and at times even in music and the literary world. All right, bear with me today because I I think I'm losing my voice and choking. Um, But hopefully I'll make it through the show. Very excited about... Now, of course, you're listening right now on AdrenalineRadio.com. If you want to watch a kind of boring live stream of just me sitting here, um, you can go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page and watch. Um, But you can read movie reviews and interviews around the globe, in the U.S. and abroad, in print and printing online 24-7, or every Monday you'll find me right here on Adrenaline, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, and if you ever miss our shows live, you can always catch up with a post-live podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, BehindTheLensOnline.net, and many other places. So, for those of you who might be watching on Facebook, on the live Facebook stream, um, we have, I, have, I had to bring this in today. And incre- I spent the weekend uh, at the Animation is Film Film Festival and doing interviews yesterday. And one of the most amazing filmmakers uh, that I spoke with was Salvador Simo, who was behind the film. Buñuel in the Labyrinth of the Turtles. And this is really the story of the making of Luis Buñuel's landmark film um, that was the the Las Hordas, Land Without Bread, is one of the titles it's known as. And for the longest time, he was considered, you know, a heretic. His films were banned. And it wasn't until much later in his career and I think sometime in the 1960s when he was embraced by the film world. And he actually went back and did a re-edit on this particular film because his financier, his dear friend, and producing and creative partner on the film, Ramon Hacin, the government had refused to allow his name on the credits. And Luis wanted to correct that error uh, in cinematic history. And it was around that time that his films, he really became acclaimed for his work. And now, Salvador has brought the story to life, but he has done it through animation. Uh, And there is going to be a release on the film sometime next year, fingers crossed, we're hoping. But he was kind enough to give me this beautiful, beautiful book about the making of... Bunuel in the Labyrinth of the Turtles. And, time permitting today, you'll get to hear part of my interview from yesterday with Salvador. Um, because from a cinematic and historical san- standpoint, it was really interesting. And, of course, Salvador is no stranger to animation or film. As he has been in animation for 30 years, also doing VFX. You've seen his work on with, through Disney, Pirates, Dead Men Tell No Tales, Jungle Book, Prince of Persia, plus his own films, animated films that he's, short ones that he's directed. So this is a feature film and this is a big thing. So uh, I'm very excited to share uh, this particular film. But there are some other great films that came out of animationist films, so that uh, I'll be talking about uh, when I can and be popping stuff up on behindthelensonline.net. But. Another wonderful thing to come out of a film festival uh, is a film called The Advocates, a documentary from Remy Kessler that debuted at uh, L.A. Film Festival and was snatched up right uh, right away by Cinema Libre, and it is already in theaters right now. Uh, And I had the good fortune to sit down with Remy and homeless advocate Rudy Salinas and talk about the making of this film. And you're going to hear part of that exclusive interview uh, when we come back. But also, later in the show today, we have an incredible filmmaker joining us, Faraday Okoro, with his film, Nigerian Prince. Shot on location in Lagos, Nigeria. This is a fascinating character study set against the world of somebody pulling every scam known to mankind, especially email scams. So I can't wait to talk to Faraday about this film. But we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back, and you're going to hear the exlu- our exclusive interview with Remy Kessler and Rudy Salinas talking The Advocates.
1: A powerful threat calls for a greater response. Some battles must be faced together, and you can be part of this battle team to cancer.org to learn more.
2: Together we can save lives.
0: And we are back. As I was saying, the advocates um blew me away when I saw it uh it didn't quite make the cut for the LA Film Festival see Festival Films column, but I'm talking like minimally did not make the cut in comparison to the the excellence that abounded at this year's fest. Um, But it is an outstanding documentary about the homeless situation in L.A. And what makes the telling of this film uh, more interesting is Remy Kessler is a Parisian filmmaker, although L.A. is now his home and has been for a while. But to hear him be open and honest about um, how he decided to And what made him decide to make this documentary and the journey that he went on, because rather than show a bunch of protests and talking heads, talking endlessly about the homeless situation, which we hear on the news every single day. And it's not just in L.A. It is a problem everywhere within the United States. Uh, But he chose to go inside and not just meet a few selected advocates that work with the homeless in in different respects, be it in housing, be it with food, be it with medical care. But he befriended some of the homeless, and we actually get to follow the journey of several of them on their way to finally getting an apartment or a a journey of a brother and sister that is just absolutely heart-wrenching and heartbreaking, but with a happy ending. But we actually get to see and and learn about these people who have become disenfranchised because of our political and societal situation uh, in the world today. And meeting some of these advocates who are boots on the ground, working with these people, uh, it's inspiring. It's eye-opening. And the fact that Remy, um, his first documentary feature, he is renowned for doing... Um, Commercials for uh, companies such as Renault, Chrysler, Christian Dior, um, and then he did t- multiple TV series in Paris. So, this was a long, arduous process, a lot of research, nine months worth of preparation went into making this documentary. And of course, one of his right hands was when he met Rudy Salinas and teamed up with Rudy, one of the great advocates out there. So, take a listen and uh, We'll be interrupting this whenever Faraday calls in this morning, and then we'll get back to the interview later in the show. But take a listen now. Well, I have to tell you guys, this is one of the most interesting documentaries that I have seen dealing with the homeless issue. Not only is it interesting, the way you have edited this together and with engaging interviews with people like Rudy... We actually get to see a human side, but connect. You don't pepper everybody with statistics and continually say, well, we don't have this, we don't have this, we don't have this, and this is a problem. You actually show us some people being proactive and doing something, which actually I would think may help once the movie goes out. People will say, ooh, the money is actually getting to the people that need it. We may want to give you some money. But really, really well done documentary on oh, every you. level. Thank you so much. Now, I'm curious. Here you are, a Parisian filmmaker, years in, in Paris doing work, commercials, and you pick L.A. homelessness to do a documentary on. How does this happen?
1: Well, I, 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 yes, I am <laughs> born and raised in Paris, France, uh, but I lived here 21 years. Mm-hmm. This is my own town. I, I'm almost really sorry. I, I was not born here. <laughs> and I wish I was actually. Uh, I love this city um, very much, uh, and uh, because I love this city, you know, the fact that I'm part of it and, and, and seeing homelessness really broke my heart, um, like everyone here. So that's how I came to to say, you know, maybe I can do something about. It. I mean, actually, the story, what happened is is uh, I was... Uh, a friend of mine is a Buddhist teacher, and uh, I was sitting with him drinking a cup of coffee. Not speaking about religion, but um, speaking about bonsai, because uh, <laughs> 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 bonsai addicted. And uh, we were sitting on Sunset Boulevard in Silver Lake, or on Echo Park, and this gentleman came to us and asked us for some money. And... I threw him away And say "Out oh, there, You Bother us I'm speaking But mm-hmm. my friend Took his wallet out And pulled out A one dollar bill And the dollar bill Was written 50 homeless And mother. And And I that When the guy left I said well, What is that all about And he said You know Who am I To judge someone Who's begging
3: mm-hmm.
1: And I'm using this one dollar bill to teach people compassion. And that started for me a journey where I thought maybe I was not reacting properly to that gentleman coming, begging. Uh, I went from not giving money to give money to not give money anymore because I realized that I by giving money I was buying the time that I should have spent with him. Mm-hmm. So now I don't give money anymore but I would Smile, or I would give time
3: because
1: mm-hmm. uh, I actually needed almost more.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I would buy food, I would buy lunch, I would buy dinner, sure. I would, uh, but I would not give money anymore unless there is really obviously this person needs a dollar bill or some more. Right. To, 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 uh, and uh, I remember it was about one year in my journey, somehow. I uh, was uh, going to the gym close to the app light and I saw those two women homeless mm-hmm. with, uh, on the street. There was a lot of people home- experiencing homelessness and I, th- the way that they, they they behave, the way they looked really broke my heart. And I thought, what can I do throughout that? And I didn't know what to do. And I thought, maybe I'm a filmmaker, maybe I can tell a story which will tell... The story of my own journey, what I went through, is mm-hmm. understanding the guilt, the you know all of those complex feelings that you have when you look at someone experiencing homelessness and you turn your head, and, mm-hmm. and, and that's how I started to really be interested in doing a film about it. Um, but I didn't know how to do it actually because I started doing research and and, and I saw. On of film on Skidrow on mm-hmm. homelessness and the life of the homeless, so, uh, and that was not interesting. I didn't want to. Remember thinking, I don't want to go with the camera inside a tent and film. I was absolutely not interested by that thing, you know, the drama, yeah. and, and and it was a struggle because I didn't know how to do it until one morning. <laughs> stupid, I thought. Well, I'm not going to film, that. and that started. The, the, the beginning of this film, The Advocates, because I thought, well, I'm going to film the people who help them. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, it looked like I was the first one doing that. Uh,
0: trust me, with all the documentaries I have seen on the subject and even television programming has been done, I think you could be one of the, ra- what, the first, if not one of the few,
1: And uh, suddenly things really started to open up. Suddenly, you know, it was like, ah, finally I found my avenue. I started doing research. I started doing, you know, really walking for six months trying to understand the problem, trying to understand the numbers, trying to understand the fact. And it is complicated. Mm -hmm. There is not too (laughs) different, I mean, how many homeless people in the streets of Los Angeles? It took me, I don't know how long to find the right number because everyone has a interpretation of the numbers Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, the film September 2015 I really decided to okay we'll go in production so I started Mm -hmm. preparing and I started speaking with people and I remember my production manager I mean I was working with for many years doing commercial and music video and she said you know there is this organization who look for volunteers on Craigslist to go Mm -hmm. on schedule I said, you have to be joking. And uh, she said, no, no, no. And she sent me the coexist message. And I answered. That was Mel Tiyakuratne. And I wrote him, And I said, Mel, uh, I'm a producer. Can I meet with you and speak? And he said, sure, you can speak. You can speak. And I said, I don't want to do a film on homelessness. He said, well, if you want to film me, you have to come here four times a week. And, and for a while. And then, <laughs> You <laughs> see, if you still want to do it. And that's how it started. I mean, the first night on ski was life changing for me. I went one night and came back a complete different man. Mm. Completely different wow. man. Um, I had a man that put me on the beginning of the line, he, and I had to greet people and shake their hands. And I uh, remember this gentleman, African American, a little higher, taller than me. No order, and uh, his eyes had no expression. You know, the, the hopeless, the vacant look, oh, vacant yeah. look. And and uh, <laughs> so then, uh, good, good evening, sir. How are you tonight?"
0: And that's just a taste of what is yet to come later in the show today. More from Remy Kessler, and Rudy Salinas does jump in. Uh, after this background from Remy on how uh, he began the film of The Advocates. But right now, I'm very excited to welcome Faraday Okoro to the show. Hey, Faraday. Hello, how are you? I am fine. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Well, I have to say, I was riveted to Nigerian Prince.
4: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: This is something that I have not seen before. This is an entirely new perspective on what could be, you know, a regular kind of crime thriller uh, kind a kind of uh, production. But you make this an intense character study, but it's not a character study of the first character we meet. You kind of turn the tables on us, and instead of focusing on our American teenager, Easy, whose mom has sent him to his aunt in Nigeria to go to school for a year uh, and to clean up his act and straighten up and learn about his history, it shifts, and it really focuses on Easy's cousin, Pius, who is is—he's a master scammer. And it's his world that we then really get to dive into and understand and see what happens to everybody in his orbit. And I just think that construct was so engaging and so compelling. So I'm curious where the idea for this film came and how you went about working with Andrew Long, your co-writer, and writing and structuring this.
4: Yeah. so... Um, Back in college, when I was a high school senior, uh, or sorry, when I was a senior in college, um, I was working in a computer lab, and it just hit me all at once that the idea for making a film about, you know, Nigerian email scammers would be very appealing, Um, and I was surprised that such a film had not been made already, Um, so, and by then, I was a film, uh, you know, studies or film production major in college. Mm -hmm. I continued uh, filmmaking in uh, grad school. And, you know, very shortly, like, I realized, like, okay, let me start working on this feature before it's too late. And, you know, to really get an idea of what it is I was working on, Um, You know, I began to do a lot of research about the topic. I talked to scammers. I talked to experts. I talked to, um, you know, officers. I talked to law enforcement from different uh, agencies in the U.K. and uh, in the States. And then also I infused a little bit of my own sort of uh, background in the story to not only uh, make it personal, but to make it more palatable for a Western audience. Mm-hmm. I needed sort of um, to get a to get the audience like acclimated to the scenery, what's going on. I needed, you know, for a shorthand to be developed as the film uh, progress.
0: No, I mean it's very well structured, very well written, and the characters are very interesting and compelling. And of course, your entree is our American teen um, easy. But what you do is you shot this in Lagos, Nigeria. So you infuse, you immerse us in the Nigerian landscape uh, of this town landscape of the scams. It's not just email scams that you bring up in here. It's, you know, it's the black money scams that are happening. It's, you know, corrupt police departments. Everybody's on the take. And you extend it beyond that even to Easy's mother, who lied to him initially. Well, you're only going to Nigeria for four weeks, and then it's, nah, too bad. Cashed in your plane ticket. You're staying for a year. Um, There's a little bit of of chicanery going on with everybody. I think with the exception of Aunt Grace. But... (laughs) But that, mm-hmm. that depth and tep- and texture that you infuse, you know, it's so important it's so important that we have that, that connection, as you said, um, and palatable for Western audiences. But what made it so important to you to actually film in Lagos?
2: Well,
4: um, you know, I think you know, as I've developed, um, you know, in my studies of filmmaking and whatnot, like wanting to make my first feature in Nigeria was uh, very important to me. And then I, I thought just what would be logical, realistic for this premise. Mm-hmm. And while there are a number of, you know, you know, American scammers or Nigerian-American scammers in America, I thought, you know, what would make this sort of take it to another level? What would make this, you know, something that, we, as a you know Western audience, have not seen uh, what would make it more authentic to the subject matter. I wanted to you know explore a part of the world that is rarely seen in cinema
0: mm-hmm. for
4: the west at least
0: oh i I mean that just and what you do by taking us to Nigeria, the film comes alive with the vibrancy of the culture, the vibrancy of of the markets, the clothing um the paint on on walls, I mean, you feel the the life that's there, um, but also at the same time, just given the the whole nature of the climate we live in in the world today, you also feel the edginess, that propensity and excitement for potential criminals, and you know, it's not like you're just, you're in in some down and out area that's all gray and brown, and there's nobody that you can really pull a scam on. Here, life is so bountiful and energetic and abounding. You can feel the energy of, uh, you know, of Pius and also of his boss and to an extent easy as to, you know, what you can get out there and take without asking. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, just so beautifully done. Um, You know, as how did you approach directing this? And of course shooting overseas it's always a hassle you know you always need film permits uh you've got to pay permit fees you run you have problems finding crews sometimes even in the united states now here you are in nigeria so what was your logistic process like to get you into nigeria and do what you needed to do to shoot a film
4: um well for My crew and I, um, it was a huge undertaking, uh, specifically for, you know, myself and my producers. Um, My U.S. producer, Oscar Hernandez, uh, you know, we've never shot a film in Nigeria. So I think, like, you know, as we started location scouting and looking for um, talent, like, the, the magnitude of this endeavor was, like, you know, it began to become really apparent to us that, okay... Uh, we really have to plan, you know, accordingly. We really have to, um, you know, just make sure that everybody's on the same page. Because Nigeria, while it's like, I would say, like, you know, they, with Nollywood, there's, you know, a ton, a ton of films shot there annually. In fact, more than the U.S.
3: Mm-hmm. But
4: um, we realized, like, we couldn't go about shooting it with a sort of a min- American, you know, Hollywood Mentality, we had to go about it within Nigeria's pace.
3: Mm
4: -hmm. Uh, So, for instance, you know, like no company moves, which means, you know, if you're done at this location, you can't go all the way across town to shoot, you know, something else. Um, We had to be very careful when we were outside. Um, We had to, you know, be mindful about the weather because we shot during the tail end of the rainy season and, you know, without warning you know, it could flood. Uh, So we just had to, you know, be precise, be, um, you know, communicate our objectives and whatnot to really make sure we got a lot of that, you know, truth and that color and that beauty and that, those performances on screen. Um, And I, you know, I think we were successful. And I think, you know, not only does the film offer something for uh, those of us who've never been to Nigeria, but For those who are familiar with the culture, I think, uh, in fact, what I hear a lot is just that, you know, people are so uh, happy and so, you know, enthusiastic to see uh, Nigeria portrayed in a, you know, non-Nollywood fashion, a more uh, American independent, you know, type film tradition.
0: Mm-hmm. How hard is it, you know, in securing film permits? I mean, because you mentioned when you finish at one location, it's not like you can take off and go to another location. It's like when you're done that day, you're done. You can't speed up your process uh, and, mm-hmm. and save time. So I'm curious about, you know, that permit process to actually get permission, be able to shoot, and how much downtime you have, you know, in terms of your planning for, you know, you've got five locations, how much time do you have to allot, is there any downtime in between, beyond one day, one day, one day. The permit process in Mm -hmm. a foreign country always fascinates me. And Mm -hmm. with Nigeria, you get into into the African continent and countries, and I think it's even, there's so much film coming out of there in other regions. So I'm fascinated by this and particularly, you know, going into Nigeria.
4: Yeah. So in Nigeria, like it, there's no, I would say it's not a traditional way of, you know, applying for permits. Like there are official permits you could get, but they're not as regularly as enforced and widely accepted as like, most people, you know, would know a permit is, um, if anything, you know, you have to you you with your location manager, you go to a particular, um, you know, province or area in the city and you figure out, OK, who is the person I need to uh, speak to here? And it's sort, it's almost like an unofficial um, mayor of, you know, this part of the city mm-hmm. or, um, you know, or like if you're shooting in an airport. You go to whoever sort of the highest-ranking person you can get there to, you know, get permission to shoot in this airport. Um, that's sort of, may that's the the main way you go about shooting uh, films, whether you are a foreigner or whether you know you're a local.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And surprisingly, uh, maybe you 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 could see it in the film as well. They were like, we were shooting really 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 fast. Um, like, there was always something for us to do, and the way we planned it was that, like, let's say we could shoot Grace's apartment stuff, which is the Pius's mother. Mm-hmm. We shoot her, you know, house stuff in the same location where we have Pius's apartment. So they're actually part of the same compound, but, you know, with film trickery, you never know. Right. Um, and then also... You know, like, if we need to shoot an exterior location that I know that is not, like, location-specific, it would just be, okay, come on, everybody grab the equipment, let's just walk, um, you know, 30, 40 yards this way and shoot that scene, you know, in the script. So we tried to maximize our days like that.
0: Mm-hmm. How long was the shoot in Nigeria?
4: So we had... 25 days uh for principal photography
3: mm-hmm.
4: um we had three days where we shot in new york city and we had an additional three days where we built uh the smart uh police office in uh, jail in nigeria mm-hmm. so in total 25 it 31 days
0: wow not yeah. too shabby you know, i've got to, Thank I, I've, you. I've got to talk to you about working with your cinematographer Sh- uh, Sheldon Chow um, what were you guys shooting on what kind of discussions do the two of you have about bringing the visuals to life and telling us st- also telling a part of the story with the visuals because it is it's shot beautifully um, you know you take advantage of the color you take advantage of the vibrancy b- but uh, but it's also very traditionally shot. So we really get mm-hmm. to become involved with the characters. So I'm curious about your discussions with Sheldon and your thought process, the thought process between the two of you, for the visuals.
4: Well, um, so I would say, you know, with Sheldon, the cinematographer and the production designer, and, you know, to some extent the costume uh, designer as well, it's sort of this, you know, holistic approach. Um, so, for instance, a lot of the color you see in the film are stuff like, you know, the walls we painted. Mm-hmm. Or there is a lot of the uh, what you see that is created. Um, and it was a balance between, in regards cinematography, it was a balance between, uh, you know, the aesthetics and practicality. Um, so we wanted, for instance, a camera that. Uh, can handle low light uh, really well Mm -hmm. uh, because while there's, you know, lighting equipment in Nigeria, it's not as robust as you see, you know, with, um, you know, American rental houses. Uh, So we needed a camera that could, you know, do as much as possible for us. Um, We we had a very light camera crew and G&E crew. Um, We had to, you know, be mindful of electricity. So we had this huge, you know, for instance, um, generator that followed us wherever we went because as you see in the film, electricity is not um, is not available for you 24 hours. And also we used a lot of like visual aids. Like we watched a lot of movies. We scoured the web for like Nigerian uh, photography. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tried to implement a lot of what we you know, saw about the culture, about the uh, the landscape, about the lighting from other films, and we tried to incorporate it in Nigerian Prince as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And of course, you've got some beautiful tracking shots uh, happening oh, in the, that really add to some of the very sus- suspenseful moments. And there are quite a few suspenseful moments in this film, of course, stemming from uh, Pius and his and. His partners in crime, um, but particularly involving the local law enforcement, involving Smart and his officers and how they handle things. La- that is, uh, pro- those are probably some of the most tension-filled s- filled scenes in the entire film. And so well executed. To, and, you know, a lot of it is with, when we're following... You know, those tracking shots, it's like it's like something's going to happen, something's going to happen, and you're building, and you're waiting, and you really, really pull us in in those moments. And it's just so well done.
3: <laughs> Thank
4: you. Yeah. Um, like, I would say some of the tracking shots you mentioned are, you know, stuff again from our references. Um, I don't know if you've seen the film called uh, Hannah. Yes. They use a number of uh, tracking shots to, you know, build suspense. Um, so that was, you know, something we implemented um, in the film animal kingdom, you know, they're able to use a uh, slow motion very effectively. So we had sort of this theme going uh, with our camera that would amplify, um, you know, specific scenes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite parts of the film is, is the whole thing about the black money. Um, you know, what kind of research did you do to find out about the black money and then implement that into your script?
4: Yeah, regarding, you know, research, I, you know, I feel like I'm probably, you know, one of the experts on, you know, this scam now. Uh, in fact, when we were filming, uh one of my the second AD kind of laughed cuz he's just like, how do you know about all this stuff?" <laughs> Uh, yes.
0: How do you know about all
4: this? Stuff? Yeah. So I mean that that came about through research. It's black money. The black money scam is one of the things that you know. I, I would say people watch, and I wish I could put a little subtitle that says, "This is real. This actually happens." Um, that's one of the questions I get the most. Um, you know, I scoured the web, for instance, and if you Google "black money scam Nigeria," for instance, you'll see it come up um it's been profiled in a few um broadcast news channels Mm -hmm. so for instance you know a maid would be cleaning a room and then you know they open the door and they see like you know black money they see powder they see liquids chemicals and you know they call police because at first glance it looks like a cocaine binge or sure or you know laboratory going on but as the police did their research, they discovered that, um, in fact, this is what's called the black money scam. So, for instance, that's where that came from. It came from, you know, just myself scouring the web looking for different types of scams that I could uh, portray in the film. And I stumbled upon that. And, you know, I just continued doing further research to figure out what chemicals, um, you know, they use to make uh, for instance, construction paper look like, uh, you know, black painted dollar bills and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say a lot of that does go to uh, my production designer, Defon Ugo, who, um, you know, after I came up with the idea, he's the one who did, you know, that, the, the thorough actual research and figuring out how they do this.
0: Wow. Because that fascinated me. The whole black money thing, that fascinated me. I mean, we've all heard of the email scams. And I think every single one of us have gotten at least one, if not a hundred, of those kind of emails in our spam boxes. But the black money thing, that was, that was a whole new deal. I was, I was fascinated by that. Uh, and to know that it is all, all authentic. And you actually researched all the chemicals, too. You didn't give did. <laughs> you, you didn't actually give the proper recipe on screen though for the to put the the chemicals together, did you? No, it it, it wasn't okay.
4: relevant to the plot. Okay. You know? <laughs> and then also also like how you know scripts are structured, you know it's just like if you it, it will spoil the reveal, if you know what I mean?
0: Yes. Well, I would be remiss not to ask you about your casting. I mean, I've got to tell you, Antonio J. Bell is easy, is you know, a bright young talent, let me tell you. Um, he really knows how to emote. He he really gets down the, you know, angry teen, I hate mom and dad vibe really well. Uh, but then to see him play against Chinazu Uchi, who plays Pius, He is a force of nature. He is magnetic. Where did you find these two guys? Because Chinaza is just, you can't help but look at him with the intensity that he has in this performance.
4: Yeah. Um, So that, I guess I approached casting in two ways or three ways. Um So one thing I didn't mention was initially this project was a 250K, you know, budget. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: Um, So at that budget, I realized I had to, you know, start looking for actors immediately. Uh, So I asked my friends, you know, do they know any, you know, Nigerians or people who could play, uh, you know, Nigerians for this movie I'm writing? And nearly everyone recommended I reach out to Chinaza, who at the time was performing in a off-Broadway play called Sir Um And in the play, he was a Nigerian, uh, a Nigerian in Nigeria. And, you know, I saw I must have seen that play three times. And, you know, he's just electrifying. So immediately I reached out to the playwright. I asked if I can, um, you know, speak to him. And, you know, he, he, he read the script and he knew that it would, you know, provide him a lot of, you know, freedom to create this character, and he would have a lot of fun with it. Um, so that's how he was cast. And with um, Antonio, uh, we casted him after we received the funding, uh, the million dollars to make the film. And we worked with uh, A.V. Kaufman, who's, you know, this huge uh, casting uh, director here absolutely. in New Absolutely. Yeah, and she helped us find Antonio, who's based out in Atlanta. Uh, so after we casted both of them, we got them together. We did a table read, and, you know, you could see their, their you know, the camaraderie they had, the brotherhood, the, the chums. In the fact, like that day after the table reading, we all hung out at my producer. My producer had a birthday party. So, again, we just hung out together to build that um, – familiarity amongst each other Um, and then with the Nigerian actors we had a Nigerian casting director in Nigeria who helped us find like the best of the best in Nollywood to fill the rest of our
3: roles.
0: Wow Uh, I mean just exceptional performances really exceptional Uh, you know I have to wonder the character of Aunt Grace Tina Maba's depiction of her Was she based upon anyone in your life? Because she has a very, very strong maternal presence on screen.
4: Yeah, so she was partly based off my own aunt.
3: Uh
0: Um, Uh-huh.
4: like my character, yeah, like my character as a, like I was sent to Nigeria for two years to go to school in high school, my freshman and sophomore year. And for my sophomore year, I stayed with uh, my aunt in her apartment and um you know a lot of what you see on the in the film is stuff that's you know inspired by my own life there
0: wow wow now i mean it's each of the roles is each character is so well constructed faraday uh their interactions are very authentic and the film on the whole it just looks absolutely spectacular So when can everybody see this film? So
4: right now, it's actually available in theaters in 10 cities, I believe. So Mm -hmm. if you, you know, Google Nigerian Prince film, uh, you'll see where it's playing in theaters. Um, And additionally, you can find it, you know, online on various streaming services and on um, DirecTV.
0: Well. I mean, job well done. I can't wait to see what you do next. Are you working on another film at this time?
4: Um, yes. Uh though I'm at the very very early stages of it. Uh so I can't
0: Don't you know, divulge. It. Don't. It's ju- I'm just yeah. glad to know you're working on another film. So, I'm <laughs> just glad to know that. Don't divulge yet. Well, Faraday, I can't thank you enough. This has been a real joy and again, Job well done on Nigerian prints. I can't wait to see what this next one is you're doing. Something tells me it may be just as fascinating as uh, Nigerian scamming. So I will be yes, looking. I, so. <laughs> I will be looking for that one, Faraday. Thank you so much, and I hope you'll come back on the show again.
4: Definitely, I had a lot of fun.
0: Thanks, Faraday. Bye bye. All right, bye. And that was Faraday Okoro talking about his first feature film Nigerian prince and we're going to take a short pam you want to do a 15 second again we're going to take a short 15 second break come back and get back to our exclusive interview with Remy Kessler and Rudy Salinas talking the advocates <laughs>
1: goals for a greater response. Some battles must be faced together, and you can be part of this battle team. Visit
2: StandUpToKinsu.org to learn more. Together, we can save
0: lives. And we are back. And for those of you just joining us, this is Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, and... We opened the show and started with our exclusive interview with, with director Remy Kessler and homeless advocate Rudy Salinas talking about their documentary, The Advocates, which is out in theaters in limited release right now. But let's pick up our interview with Remy talking about elaborating further on how he got involved and decided upon the approach to making this documentary. Take a listen. Maybe. This is what happens with live. Pam is in there playing. Did you lose your spot, Pam? She lost her spot. I don't know what she's doing. Did you find it? She's looking. She's looking to pick up. I have tell you guys, this is one of the most interesting documentaries. Um, You're back to the beginning, Pam. I'm sure. No, Pam, home, with, with, uh, Pam, with the housing, that's the beginning. With so, so, no. Ago, with... <laughs> well, I can tell you guys, this so, is... so much
2: time has passed and it really feels like it was.
0: Okay. Um, do we need to take another break so I can come in and help you do this? You found it? Okay. She thinks she found it. Okay. Let's see how we do. Well, I have to tell you guys, this is... Okay, we're obviously having technical difficulties today, which is going with the... <laughs> he wanted
2: to sit in the car with us without a camera. He wanted to follow us. He wanted to basically just understand what the routine in the office was like in the morning. And I think about it now, and I'm reminded of this now because so much time has passed, and it really feels like it was just yesterday. That my colleagues would say, who, who's the guy? Who's the French guy? And they said, he's, he's making a film. And they're like, Rudy, he doesn't have a camera. <laughs> like people thought I was hallucinating and thought that this was just a client we were helping who was having a weird dream. But it wasn't. It was a it was a very genuine, slow approach that eventually built up enough trust, not so much just in me and the crew that he filmed, but most significantly in the people he was filming.
0: See, that's one of the things that I immediately thought of as I'm watching, and particularly everything focusing on your story with Ruben and Yolanda. Yeah. Because, you know, it's like, you, it's taking you forever to build their trust. And now you're bringing somebody else into the mix, and not just somebody else, but somebody else who really did have a camera, and you weren't hallucinating. Right. Um, so, you know, how, where is is your, your moral compass going at that point? It's like am I afraid to jeopardize I, where I've gone with these people and how far they've come? Or? I
2: absolutely feel like the bringing in a foreign element to a relationship that I'm trying to build for well over a year by the time Remy gets close to it mm-hmm. has all the makings of a disaster because this is a couple experiencing a variety of different issues, not you know, counting mental health issues, right. but counting issues with addiction and a number of different reasons, that if had it been any other person, I would have absolutely have said no mm-hmm. or felt the right to say this isn't appropriate or right. you're going to mess up this thing I'm building. But at that point in time, I had gotten to know Renly, and I had actually gotten to spend a significant amount of time with him in the field without a camera. Mm-hmm and started to realize there was truth in what he was aiming for and what he was trying to demonstrate, I should say that it would have been absolutely irresponsible of me not to talk to others who had met him or other people who had actually interacted with him. And everything coming back to me was saying this is the real deal and this guy's trying to do something to demonstrate that this is really happening. So Remy, in his introduction to Ruben and Yolanda, you know created this level of chemistry that made me feel like they liked him. Because on those occasions that I would not show up with Remy, Mm -hmm. where I was without him, they would ask where he was.
0: Oh, well, forget about Rudy now. Now they want Remy. So,
2: this made me realize right away that there was a level of trust created there that is, I'm going to just really be frank, it's not often found. And it's very difficult to create. But once you have it, it allows you to peek in through a hole and see something that you won't see very
0: you know, and one of the things that really stand out in this documentary is your relationship with Ruben and Yolanda. The, the, your level of caring, your level of involvement and commitment to you're not somebody that helps them and then you walk away. You are there, and that is I mean, really that's one of the most commendable things that I have ever witnessed. And thanks to Remy's camera, everybody now gets to see that. You know, and that that speaks volumes about you. And I think that is what is going to... That's People are going to get touched by your story with Ruben and Yolanda. Debbie, I,
2: I appreciate the compliment. It really does feel me and make me feel good. I want to also remind you that there are a small army of people like me doing yeah. this all over the city. They all do the same. Yeah. Yeah. No one does live in. But you picked him, so we like him. (laughs) But there's different versions of me that exist in places like Pomona, places like the Valley, and places like Long Beach, where you start to recognize that we're such a huge city that no two areas have the same population. And if you encounter veterans on the west side, how does that differ than if you encounter young people under the age of 14 in Hollywood? So I think it's important to understand that the... What you see me doing in the film is a small representation of what we've been doing for a while, but now we're in the middle of amplifying. Mm-hmm. I want to remind you that the film captures a moment in the city's history where we decided to tax ourselves yeah. to enhance these services. For measure H, yeah. So I would hope that there are many more people doing this kind of work than there were when this thing was filmed a while ago. Mm-hmm. So.
0: And I have to tell you, Remy... Having a camera on William when he signs his lease for his ha- his new apartment, that was the look on his face. You know, this is something that you're doing, is you're showing the world. You're showing everybody what a little bit of help and a little bit of kindness really does do. Well, thank you. It's that personal touch that you're infusing here. You know, I'm curious, out of everybody that you talked to, that you filmed... You go about developing from a, a directorial standpoint your through line to bring all of this together because you go back so, back and forth so beautifully. We we're with Rudy and Reuben and Yolanda for a while, we with William, we with Claudia, we're hearing what Ellen Cloud9 does. You know, you keep and you keep moving around, so nobody gets too. You're at ease, but you're not too comfortable so that you figure, okay, it goes like this all the time. It's always great. So I'm curious how you went about developing, finding that line to bring this film together and edit it down to what we see.
1: I think I have to recognize the talent of my editor and co-producer. Um, I work with uh, Bob, with my fault Um I've known him for. I actually worked on another project that didn't come through because the main character died. But uh, I realized that Bob had a lot of talent in terms of storytelling and, and, and uh, editing, and I worked very closely with him. So it's teamwork. And you hear and say, oh, let <laughs> me and the director. No, I'm well aware it's <laughs> teamwork. <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 um, and, and I'm sorry that Bob is not here, but he should share the the... the Compliments with me because we've worked very hard and was uh, a lot of time in the editing room, and um, he's been screaming at me a few times. <laughs>
0: Did Rudy get to go in
1: the editing room at all? Or no, no. Oh yeah, the
0: wait. No, but, oh, wait. <laughs> no, but I, I would say
1: that uh, I have a very dear friend who is a director in France, and, and she actually is the one who told me when i told her the project I was doing. She said. She had done Mm -hmm. a a, a documentary on a psychiatric uh, hospital in France, and and she's a very um, well-known documentary. And she said, Remy, you're going to have to learn not to use a camera. She said, you have to learn that, that if you feel something uncomfortable, just shut it down down." and put it... uh, uh, But she was asking me, so how is your work with the editor? I say, oh my god, you have no idea. I go there and I'm bring this footage and it's so fantastic and I'm so excited and living this editing room and I... like <laughs> no, <Nah>, not good. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really teamwork mm. and, and we walked and, and you know we have a the journey mm-hmm. of the, the production went from the world organization on the streets, mm-hmm. where there is no organization actually. Right. It's all people willing to help and who are getting together, to another organization, which is Eddie on Plan 9, which is a little more structured because it's a 501c3 and they mm-hmm. have the event going, to a very well structured organization like Housing Works and, yeah. and people working like Rudy. And this was line, this is what was uh, the, the, foundation mm-hmm. the, Fiannais, the foundation of the film. And it is the foundation of the story. Yeah. You go from Mel to Claudia to Housing Walks. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how it happened. I mean, it was tough. It was tough. Some moments, because what happened is we felt really t- interested by all those organizations to tell the story.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So after a while, we started feeling the of that trust. You know? And it's like, oh my God, what have you done? <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to be able to do that? Um, and But the, the structure was there, the foundation was there, mm-hmm. and, and uh, it's a lot of hard work, um, especially on the editor. Yeah. And, 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 well, and it needs to be recognized.
0: I also have to commend you on your cinematography because something that you also do is you keep the film totally light. It's very upbeat. It's upbeat thanks to people like Claudia, thanks to Rudy, thanks to the other interviews that you have interspersed. There's always that element of hope there, and your visual tone keeps that going with a lightness. You don't take us into typically, and you've looked at so many films on homeless now. You know, it's like it's dark, it's gray. They, you know, the sun is is never shining, and it makes everything more oppressive. But by keeping your light tone, it matches the hope that Rudy, Claudia, and everybody else is instilling. And I think that really buoys this even more. And then you toss in a lovely underscore of music, too.
1: Oh, the music is spectacular.
0: But oh. that, the, the music, you don't expect to have music in a film about homelessness, uh, okay? The music
1: is, uh, but... You know what you say is is very it's a, it's a very interesting point because when I started filming with Monday Night Mission and the first I would say the first month and a half of production I remember a phone call of Bob my editor and he said Remy, this is so dark this is so dark and I said yeah but you know I'm so upset and we have to show that and he said but it's so dark. And suddenly I realized, and I was speaking to Linda Out Girard, who is my co-producer, and, and, and she helped me also develop the story. I had a long discussion with her, uh, where we're going, and I said, "No, know, Bob is right. I'm extremely upset, and that obsession, that, that, that anger had uh, against society, against how this is possible, was transferring. And I had to force myself, and we actually did a, a 90 degree turn, and we said, okay this is not right, this is not what we want to show, this is not what we want to do, and, and I want to find the positive aspect of it, so that's what I was starting, and that's where I started looking for it, um, the hope, mm-hmm. um, where is it, where the, uh, and you say cinematography, that was so difficult to get a one man band, the, the two GoPros, the lavagniere, the mics—the oh my god—and in cars,
0: no less.
1: <laughs> and cars, and those GoPros would just suddenly, then you you like behind the seat, and you say, "Oh my god, this is so good!" And you see, beep, 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 and the GoPro just shut down. <laughs> Did you
0: enjoy this filmmaking process for the parts that you were in, Rudy? I, I must
2: say, yeah. I mean, reflecting back on it now, it was uh, it was an, an interesting experience because you would go about doing what you've done your whole career and then look up and realize that there were three cameras or a microphone Mm -hmm. but it didn't dawn on you until after the fact because of how light and how completely like off you know it was it didn't seem like it was really oppressive it
0: wasn't intrusive exactly
2: and that was for us the reason why I think we felt this was a very rare opportunity that we needed to take advantage Mm
3: -hmm.
0: now Have any of the subjects, any of the people you work with, have they seen the film or will they see the film?
2: We we know they will. We know they will because I think it's important to understand that there is a level of stability. And there is what some may argue perhaps the most significant part of their transition Mm -hmm. occurring right now. Which is just the idea that keys and furniture alone doesn't end the issue but reintegrating them into a community with a routine that they have that they feel fulfilled in is the most essential part of this work. So the act alone of just moving them in isn't the end. One may argue it's the beginning now because mm-hmm. the organization I represent in the film is now very heavily involved in ensuring that these people have the medical home, that these people are able to pay their rent on time, and most importantly, that they have now neighbors that they can have conversations and eye contact with. So again, it's... It's something we look forward to. I, it's something I personally look forward to is sitting down in the theater with Ruben and Yolanda, And sitting down with Yolanda uh, um, to be able to enjoy this show. Oh, I'm
0: dying to know what they think <laughs> of this, especially Yolanda. Sure, Yolanda, especially. I'm. I'm
1: no, absolutely. I'm Yolanda, curious. Yolanda is such 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 a lovely character. She's. Uh, she. I will. I think I will always remember. So we went at night. So Ruben is in the hospital and. Going at 4, 2 o'clock in the morning filming the cars, what happened to those cars. So I was going the Tuesday and the Thursday, I think. Yeah. Every Tuesday and Thursday when he was at the hospital, I was outside to see those cars being moved and what happened, ticketing. And suddenly I moved my camera while was, you know, at the parking of the 7-Eleven and I'm looking at my camera and suddenly I see this figure passing up three o'clock in the morning and it's Yolanda. And it's Yolanda bringing people from the community to help her. And 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 this strength that she has, Yolanda is an extremely strong woman and and, and I go there and I say, Yolanda, what are you doing here? Yeah, yeah. She said I'm moving those cars and Ruben is going to be good and they're very they're believing that they're very involved in the church right. and, and, and I've been praying for them and everybody's been praying for him and he'll be fine um those images wow. I will keep and I'm I'm, I'm I'm really excited to be able to show excited and anxious also yes uh very anxious to show the film to those people I mean uh but i I, was, I wanted to show the film to everyone who was in it. Actually, okay. I, I know that's not something that you're supposed to do as a documentarian. You, you, you don't show them. But for me, it was important to make sure that I was going in the right direction. So when we got the first rough cut, I remember inviting Woody and Selina to my house and say, have a look. <laughs> and, and the reaction was, Positive and, and Rudy's uh,
0: still talking to you, so it couldn't have been yeah. that bad.
1: <laughs> Again,
0: this is an amazing, amazing film. I can't believe it. And that was director Remy Kessler and homeless advocate Rudy Salinas talking about the advocates in theaters now. That is all the time we have for today. A big thanks to Faraday Okoro. Next week, get ready, he's back. Steve Lee and he has some kind of big announcements about the Hollywood Sound Museum. He won't even tell me what they are. He's bringing more treasures. So you definitely you want to tune in and with Steve here, you definitely want to be watching the Facebook live stream. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>